I'm Kyle Salmon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times? And how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds. That's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode eight, we read Capitalism and Freedom by Milton Friedman from 1962. Milton Friedman was the 20th century's most prominent advocate of free markets. Born in 1912 to Jewish immigrants in New York City, he attended Rutgers University where he earned his BA at the age of 20. He went on to earn his MA from the University of Chicago in 1933 and his PhD from Columbia University in 1946. After graduation, he joined the faculty of the University of Chicago where he taught economics for 30 years from 1946 to 1976. During that time, he also served as a member of the research staff of the National Bureau of Economic Research. In 1951, Friedman received the John Bates Clark Medal honoring economists under age 40 for outstanding achievement. He served as an informal advisor to Senator Barry Goldwater in his unsuccessful campaign for the presidency in 1964, to Richard Nixon in his successful campaign in 1968, and to Ronald Reagan in his 1980 campaign. In 1976, Friedman was awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics for his achievements in the field of consumption analysis, monetary history and theory, and for his demonstration of the complexity of stabilization policy. After retiring from the University of Chicago in 1976, he joined the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. In 1988, he was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. He received the National Medal of Science that same year as well. Friedman is widely regarded as the leader of monetary economics, which stresses the importance of the quantity of money as an instrument of government policy. This viewpoint contrasted with the Keynesian view prevalent in the 1960s and 70s that stressed government fiscal policy to manage the economy. Friedman strongly opposed many of the policy proposals espoused by the Keynesian economists. He argued for deregulation in most areas of the economy, calling for the return to the free market wisdom of classic economists such as Adam Smith. He argued against deficit spending and expansionary fiscal and monetary policy. Friedman argued for free trade, smaller government, and a slow, steady increase of the money supply in a growing economy. His emphasis on monetary policy, quantity theory of money, became known as monetarism. Friedman's popularity attracted other free market thinkers to the University of Chicago, giving rise to an anti-Keynesian coalition referred to as the Chicago School of Economics. In 1962, he published Capitalism and Freedom, a book he used to make the case for free markets aimed at a general audience. The book sold half a million copies and has been translated into 18 languages. In his later years, Friedman wrote editorials and appeared on television news programs. In the early 1980s, he created a successful PBS television program presenting his economic philosophy called Free to Choose. He died of heart failure in 2006 at the age of 94. I think the first thing I noticed about this book, Friedman is maybe the most individualist of all the thinkers we've covered so far. And after the last few books where a lot of them focused on community and nation that sort of thing. Friedman is really focusing on individual freedom. And you, I mean, you could see the, you could see why he was a Goldwater guy or Goldwater was a Friedman guy, depending on how you look at it, because the way they talk about freedom really lines up. One quote right from the introduction that stuck out of me was to the free man, the country is the collection of individuals who compose it, not something over and above them. That's 
serious libertarianism. And he's, he's not opposed to the idea of common heritage and traditions, but he really, his, his focus is on the individual and to some extent the family. Yeah. And so as you say, a government is a collection of individuals. It's, it's not this beneficent grantor of favors, this kind of quasi deity that's set apart some master worthy of worship or to serve. He says, you can tell right away that he kind of has a bone to pick, like an argument that needs to be made because he opens with an attack on this prevailing view of the time and really of today too, but kind of this view of an activist government where the government is the favor grantor, the, the problem solver. And he just does not view it in the same way. I love how he opened. We remember uh, JFK's famous quote, and he opens with this, ask not what your country can do for you, ask mm-hmm. what you can do for your country. And you can tell that that just yeah. sticks in his craw because he says, <laughs> asking what your country can do for you implies that government is the patron and the citizen is the ward, he says. A free man, which is, we'll say, a, a, the lover of freedom, believes that he or she themselves hold the responsibility for their own destiny. And saying, what can, you, what can you do for your country implies that government is master or deity, he says, while citizen is the servant or devotee. He just wants to knock that down, say, well, there isn't this other that is government that we all turn to hat in hand. Instead, that's, government is just a collection of us, each one of us individually. The individual is what matters. And each of us need to think in those terms that we're each autonomous. We each control our own destiny. We don't owe the government anything. We don't owe it our obeisance. We don't owe it our, our trust or loyalty. Instead, we, if anything, we maybe owe some loyalty to each other, but as a collection of... Yeah, it reminded people. me, I th- there was a, something Margaret Thatcher said along those lines. It was something like, there is no society. There are only individuals and families. Yeah. I'm not sure. I think, I think he conflates, to some extent, nation and government. Or maybe he thinks the nation isn't really a thing. That there only is the government, but when, I mean that seems to be kind of missing in a way that some conservatism we hear today and in his time would notice it, it, that there there is there is this something. It's not just the sum of its parts. There is something called America that's beyond government and beyond individual people. And I guess that's always hard to define in America because we're not like one of the old nations of of Europe or Asia where it's based on you know this ethnic group, this religion. You know, we are a collection of everybody who has showed up here over the years. Mm-hmm. But I, th- I think you miss something if you still don't consider that there is a nation. It's like when you when you see somebody, I mean, conservatives made a lot of hay out of uh, Michelle Obama saying that when her husband was elected that she was proud of America for the first time. And I think, I think what she meant was sort of like, I'm happy with my government for the first time. But it came off like mm-hmm. this whole country was lousy until now. There's a part of conservatism that really has to separate the cut in the government from the nation. I'm not sure Friedman is striking exactly the right balance on that. It makes you wonder whether in a private moment, if you asked him some questions along those lines, whether he might agree to some extent, but he's de- he's definitely sort of channeling the, the Lockean. We're all single individual people. And the only reason we gather in society is to protect our freedom and ensure that, you know, each each of us can individually pursue our own destinies and flourish on our own in the method that we find best, that suits us best, versus we need society because we need each other. Certainly, he, he doesn't have a yeah, conception that's, of that that's at true. all. Yeah, that's true. And it, it also just, it seems like there's not really any... Goldwater seemed to focus more on America as the exceptional nation, and maybe that's because he was a politician too. 
but freedom it seems more like like it's freedom did take hold here liberty is valued here but it's almost a coincidence to him i think that's sort of well it's good that we value these things and, and say the soviets for example do not and we should resist them for that reason but I don't know, he doesn't really get into well what makes this people here different it almost comes across as his view maybe yeah if you want to if you want to have a feel some nationalism and some loyalty to each other, hey, do that. You know, you're all individuals. We're all empowered to do what we want to do, and if that's what you want to do with your freedom, go for it, brother. But for him, he doesn't see any any uh, value. At least he doesn't discuss any particular value in, in in community or society or loyalty to each other that that doesn't involve the individualistic. Mm-hmm. Hey, that's my hobby. Is I love America. That that's yeah. what I do. That's me. He he does have some. And I have to say, after after reading some of the 18th, 19th century thinkers, Friedman is a pleasure to read. He's a great writer, and he comes right to the point. And when he talks about rules for government, boils it down to two things. Government should be limited, and its power should be dispersed. And I think those are two things that really carry throughout all conservative thinkers we've read so far, to some extent or another. Those are, I think, those, and those are two points that I think conservatives of our time still mostly agree with. He definitely says mm-hmm. government is essential. It's necessary. It's necessary to preserve our freedom. You know, as Locke, he's channeling Locke, channeling Goldwater. Government is necessary to, protect, to preserve our freedom. But what really scares him is concentrated political power because he thinks that that threatens freedom. And and so limited government, what does he mean by that? Well, basically, the government is there to determine the rules of the game and then act as an umpire to interpret and enforce the rules. So for Locke, who says government came into existence from the state of nature in order to protect property. Probably Friedman would agree with that. He's more concerned with, hey, look, we've got this pretty complex society, much more complex now than than in Locke's day. Yeah, we're going to have to have some rules. We're going to have to have some, some uh, guideposts. We need somebody to enforce these rules. So we need an umpire. So yeah, we're going to have to have mm-hmm. some government. We got to disperse that power. If government, he says, if government is to exercise power better in the county than in the state, better than the state than in Washington, he doesn't really develop his his federalism. But whatever it takes to limit limit the scope of concentrated power, I think this that's a little it's a little bit different of a theme than we've read before because I think it's very clear, and, and we'll get into this in a minute. But it's very clear that he's making this argument in the shadow of the Cold War with reference to the Soviet Union. And he's obviously always thinking in those terms. We we see socialism. It's out there. We know that we don't want to go down that road. We have to always think in terms of how do we avoid that concentration of power so that we can maintain yeah, our I, I, You can definitely see that in it when he described why we should limit and disperse power. You, you see that, that shadow of the Soviet economy over his thoughts. He said, we should do it to protect freedom. But also because that civilization's great advances have never come from centralized government. They've always come from individual efforts and ideas. And the idea that people can think up things and try things on their own without being told to do or forced to do or made to fall in line as a cog in some great system that somebody's planning from whatever capital city in your country or state. People just, you know, figuring things out and trying things and some of them will fail and some will succeed. And then the ones that succeed end up giving us all of our great inventions and ideas it's, that's hard to disagree with. I mean, he mentions in the in its conclusion a few things that it's useful for government to have done, like uh, the great highway systems, space program extent, although I don't think he's terribly wild about the space program. But, you know, just the idea, uh, an individual is not going to put a satellite up, although I guess today Elon Musk is putting satellites up. But, you know, there are some things, building the Hoover Dam, 
all of these are ideas that people already thought of. It's just government doing them on a certain scale. So when it comes to new ideas and new inventions, I think Friedman would say, and I agree with him, that all comes from from out there, not from the halls of Congress or the bureaucracy. So he makes this insightful argument that I don't think that I had seen put forward in the same way. He argues that competitive capitalism, and what he means is the free market, competitive capitalism is a necessary condition for political freedom, mm. for political freedom, just to reemphasize that. I found that really interesting. He develops that in his chapter one. He says, economic freedom is an indispensable means towards the achievement of political freedom. Wow, that's interesting. I wonder how. I wonder why. And he says it's because the free market or competitive capitalism promotes political freedom because it separates economic power from political power and in this way enables the one to offset the other. Which I found, I guess, is self-evident, but it's very insightful. I think we have a, a clear piece of evidence of that. The current government in China where, you know, he says the wider the range of activities covered by the market, the fewer are the issues on which explicitly political decisions are required. And it got to me thinking, yeah, that's right. Because, you know, Congress these days is so wrapped around the axle and really unable to do anything mm -hmm. important. And what if every economic decision like in China had to go through Congress? No, this would not work in a de democratic no, society. I, I, it made me all. think of China too. I mean, he talks about some like Italy and Spain under fascism that were sort of capitalist, but politically unfree. But I think it's even more true of what we used to call communist China today. And that they're, well, they are a lot more like those fascist countries than actual communists anymore. But yeah, I just, um, I think his idea was also like, if you wanted to protest something today, if you wanted to advocate for some change in the law in America, you know, you could hire a press to print up your stuff. You could go on television, you could put it over the air on the radio or nowadays the internet. Whereas even if you had those political rights under a system of coercive economic, coercive economic system, the government could say, yeah, you can, you can say what you want, but none of the government owned paper companies are going to sell you paper. None of the government owned newspapers or radio stations or television stations are going to distribute your words. And also you might have trouble at your government job because we don't like you and we can use that as leverage against you. But yeah, you, you're technically free. And I, this is like when you hear people mm -hmm. talk about democratic socialism anymore. It's, that's, that's democratic socialism. How are you free if <laughs> government cuts your paycheck? You know, I mean, can, can you go to work and, and complain about, no, I mean, you're going to get, you're going to get sanctioned. You're going to get fired. Maybe how on, how on earth would we expect that, that individuals could fight back against what they see as, you know, discrimination or injustice? No, they can't because the government is the one who pays her, mm -hmm. pays and her just bills. controls all, controls everything. So uh, you already in a free society are up against whatever the president or prominent members of Congress are saying. They, they've got a, a bully pulpit and a you know, big microphone, but you can at least go against it. If, that, if, if they were the only ones allowed to amplify their voices, even if you wouldn't, even if your, your own livelihood were somehow not jeopardized, your chances of getting your ideas out there are, are nil. And I, I thought that was, that was a, an example. I hadn't exactly thought of it from that point of view, but that's a great, that was a great way of him explaining yeah. why, yeah, if you don't, if the economy is not free, freedom is at best an illusion. Fast forward to today, maybe maybe you're not going to pass out handbills or something like that on political topics. You use Google, you use Facebook. What's happening in China? Well, to some extent, it's a free market, but you can't use Facebook is blocked. Google, to the extent that they've operated there, are severely limited. They have to follow all these authoritarian rules. So you can't, you couldn't even get your message out online. Yeah, either. And, and a lot of the companies will just kind of go along with it in pursuit of profits. I mean, we saw this, something this week where Netflix was censoring its one of the uh, comedians on there 
when they distribute in Saudi Arabia because he said something against the Saudi government. And it's, I mean, that happens mm -hmm. in China, I'm sure, constantly. So yeah, without that, saying without that political freedom, even companies that we see as powerful are going to knuckle under and go along either out of a sense of self-preservation or just a desire for profits by any means. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If you don't mind, I want to, I want to return to this, this idea of that, uh, that I mentioned a second ago, the wider the range of activities covered by the market, the fewer are the issues on which explicitly political decisions are required. He says further, the fewer the issues on which agreement is necessary, the greater is the likelihood of getting agreement while maintaining a free society. That really stuck out to me. I think that's very insightful because, again, we have a Congress that's wrapped around the axle. We have a presidency that has some ability through the administrative state to act unilaterally. But in a democratic society, and certainly in America, you have to have some level, some base level of agreement in order to move things ahead. And, you know, we have a, a Democratic Party whose presidential contenders, many of them, don't really believe in a free market, or if they do, they believe that it that it should be strapped down and used more as a public good that's controlled by the collective. We can't even deci make decisions on social political issues. How in the world could we expect a democratic society in America? We could make decisions when it comes to to how much widgets a company right. should produce. It's just impossible. And in, in China, they act that way. Because, I mean, China is basically a, a gigantic corporation. From the outside, we think, well, that looks really efficient. Certainly in some ways it is. But it's also the case that they have just endless amounts of oh, waste yeah. <laughs> going on over there. You'll see, I visited uh, a few years ago, you see these gigantic wind farms. Guess what? They're not even connected <laughs> to the electrical grid. Why? Because some government bureaucrat got out over his skis and like, hey, this is what we're going to do to build our economy locally is all these wind farms. Oh, wait, it's not even connected to the grid. So it has no value at all. Endless amounts of waste. You know, everything will, I think politicians have control. You're going to see one boondoggle after another. You're, you're not going to see any agreement that's going to allow, you know, companies to operate with clear guidance of or expectations, uh, rules of the road. So that they can actually do what they do best, which is yeah, and great it, wealth. It, it always subordinates everything going on to whatever the politicians of the day want. Like in, in, when we had our recession a few years ago, companies went bust, a few banks went bust, things had to work themselves out because the things that people thought were worth something turned out to be not worth it. But in China, they're still carrying a lot of that rot in the system. The company couldn't pay its loans, but was favored by party officials. And they just told the banks, you know, don't collect on that loan for a while. So now their banks are 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 also still yeah. sick and carrying that dead weight, but they're not allowed to go out of business either. So maybe the government props them up, you know, something. But eventually, it's 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 all fake and it has to come down. And you know, maybe they save themselves some of the bumps that we had. And you know, two thousand nine was not a great year around here, but it was a, it was a true reflection of how the economy actually was. And when it was finally, to some extent, allowed mm -hmm. to work itself out, we're healthier for it in the end. China's still carrying. All yeah, that that's weight. a great point. And they're doing yeah doing boondoggles like you're talking about with wind farms. They're making steel when they don't need steel because they don't want to shut the steel plant down because it employs thousands of guys in Manchuria. Right, right. That's eventually going to have to come to an end. And in the meantime, it's just wasting the people's money, wasting the people's resources. And it's one of the things I know we're going to get to Hayek eventually. But one of the things from the road to serfdom that impressed me when I read it years ago is if you're running a command style economy, you have to be right. If you screw it up, you screw it up for everybody. Yeah. You know, if you're running a business and it's yeah, your own thing, yeah. you screw it up. Well, that's your business and it hurts you and your workers, but there are other businesses that are still going to run and deliver the things that you fail to deliver. 
I think I think that's a great insight and good analogy with the financial crisis, especially in operating within the structure of a democratic society. Because you know, like you said, in China they just tell the banks don't collect the loan. While here, having the the government bail out the banks was enough to almost cause riots in the street. It was done for good reason, but it's still ticked me off too. And I think the, the the best analogy, you use steel in China. I think the best analogy for here would be closing a military mm. base. You know, it is almost impossible to close a base. We've had the, a BRAC process, that streamlined process for closing bases that are no longer needed, that are inefficient, that don't make any sense for the contemporary military. Communities don't want a base no. closed in their community because we're talking about thousands and thousands of jobs. Now you government is control, controlling the economic sphere. It's not just making decisions about how many cans of corn that need to be produced, but it's also making decisions about distributing jobs, just, you know, distributing livelihoods. What politician is going to vote and say, hey, yeah, let's, uh, you know, that, that company there, that's no longer efficient. So, Let's end that and let let their competitors sort of split up their market share. Oh, 20,000 jobs in that? Well, that's just how the market need to work. And uh, we need to make those decisions. I mean, it's just, it's almost asking. Yeah, that's, um, that could even work. that's a good point. And it's, it's kind of like our lack of entitlement reform is a politician will always kick the can down the road because he's got to get elected in two years. The problem's not coming around for 10 years. So yeah, oh yeah, maybe that's somebody else's job to fix. And they, they I think- it would be, yeah, it would be 10 times worse if they were running major sectors of the economy the way they run government entitlements. I mean, it would just, yeah, nothing would get. But uh, to your mm-hmm. point about a lot of current politicians on the left not really believing in the free market, one point of Friedman's I, I thought was true then and now is a lot of people who say they don't like the free market are not exactly opposed to it, but they, they don't like what it comes up with for answers. And I think that's sort of the, the Clinton wing of the Democratic Party. So, oh, we love the free market. We love Wall Street. We love all of that. Oh, they want to do this decision? Yeah, well, that's not allowed. We can't. They want to pretend to like the free market. But problem with liking freedom is people, what, you know, as he says, freedom is a means, not an end. And what people do with it, it's often, you know, I mean, I think everybody is going to look at some company's decision or even some decision of a person they know, an individual, oh boy, I wouldn't have done that. That seems really dumb. Or that's, that seems really inconsiderate. And then what you get from politicians on the left is like, well, well then that part should be, we love the free market, but not that part. Got to, got to ban that part, got to regulate mm-hmm. that part. Oh, and this other thing. Yeah. Don't do that either. You know? So I think Friedman's ideas have achieved victory rhetorically because everybody says they like, but what people actually do with it. And you see that on the right too. I mean, I think there's a lot of things the president does that, you know, oh, they're closing that factory. Oh, that's no, you can't do that. Yeah. You want to put those jobs where? Yeah. Mm -hmm. They've got to stay in Wisconsin. That's that. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of lip service to Friedman's ideas, but uh, increasingly, I think on both sides, you get people who say, well, I believe it, but you can't do that. I think this 2020 campaign, primary campaign on the Democratic side, I think we're going to see that that rhetorical battle played out. I'm a little fearful of it, to be honest with you, because I think that that's certainly that's where Elizabeth Warren wants to go. She'll say, I love capitalism and I believe in in capitalism, but we need to make some changes because capitalism right. is not working for everybody. In and of itself, you know, that has some appeal. I don't I don't deny that. But what she's really getting at is, you know, what you just pinpointed. Some of the decisions companies, even small businesses make, that harms people that I view as my constituents. And so I'm going to do what I can to prevent that harm. Well, you know, guess what? In the, in a free market, there is creative destruction and there really are no more typewriter technicians in America. Just 
that's how that's how it goes if we want technological advancement if we ever want to reach a an actual green society well we need technology we need to advance we need we're not going to get there if it's always subject to politicians and their whims and as you said their very short-term view of the world i need to get reelected, so i can't possibly do anything to harm you know this interest group i need to prevent that i need to save them so that i can be saved uh, yeah i think warren's kind of ideas are ultimately even more destructive than the ones you'll see in china because china's going to impose all these rules on their businesses but then they're also going to prop up those businesses so that they're not going to fail they're just going to be inefficient Mm -hmm. and and wasteful whereas the, the more regulations the government puts on the more taxes they'll say it's a great idea you can handle it you can afford those taxes you're rich but if the business loses money it's going to go under and you know no matter how Friedman says something about that, you know, intentions don't change the results of your actions. I have the exact quote in my notes here somewhere, but it's... Well, and in fact, he he hits that point a couple times where he basically acknowledges that a lot of the folks who want to centralize are doing so for good reasons. They're men of goodwill. Oh, here's the drive to central centralization, mostly led by men of goodwill trying to do good, who are trying to improve the world, or trying to solve problems. The implications and the ramifications are just, they're outside of the control of anybody. Yes, it, concentrated power is not rendered harmless by the good intentions of those who create it. Uh, yeah, I don't think I don't think Warren is trying to destroy America or anything so so evil as that. She thinks these are good ideas, no, no. or at least ideas that'll get her elected. But yeah, when you end up destroying those businesses and those jobs, all you do is it's basically outsourcing, you know, by other means because people are still going to buy stuff. Now they're going to buy it from China or Vietnam or, or yeah. wherever because they can't make it here because the government has created conditions in which it's impossible for anyone to make a profit. So in that way, she's that sort of like half measure free market is it can't, you know, it's can't survive half one thing, half the other. Let's get into his, how he defines freedom because mm-hmm. title of the book, capitalism and freedom. Um, as we mentioned a minute ago, it's, one of his core concerns. And again, he says, the freedom of the individual is the ultimate goal. And what is freedom to him? Freedom is whatever does not interfere with another man's freedom. Basically, like the ultimate goal of government and of society is to allow the individual to do whatever she or he wants that does not interfere with someone else's freedom. It's a good definition. And free economy gives people what they want instead of what a particular group thinks they ought to want. (laughs) Once again, going back to our this you know conversation about about Elizabeth Warren, but we can also see that from the right because it does not provide a whole lot of room for you know George Will's desire to cultivate virtue. You know, it doesn't doesn't provide a whole lot of room for for Bork interest in, in censorship. It doesn't provide a whole lot of room for building the virtuous society. Instead, we're going to say no. We need to avoid all of that. Is what Friedman says. Friedman says you you want to cultivate virtue, you do that on your own time. You know, get together, do that in your churches. Do that in your social groups. As far as the government's concerned, freedom is all we care about. And that means set, set up some rules, force those rules, allow individuals to do whatever they want as long as Yeah, he even explicitly talked about a liberal, and he, he uses the word liberal in the 19th century sense to mean a person who believes in liberty. So a liberal should have two sets of values, one governing the relations among people, which is his idea that we should value freedom, uh, and another one determining what to do with that freedom, which he says is the realm of individual ethics and philosophy. And that, boy, that's um, mm-hmm. that reminds me of '90s Republicanism. You know, that reminds me of uh, Gingrich's day, where I think he heard a lot of people saying, and even he heard it on the left back then, so you can't legislate morality. And well, that's kind of true. I, mean, I believed it back then more than I believe it now, but maybe that was just being young and mm-hmm. I don't know, not thinking things through. 
because I do think I think some of the points that Will made in uh, episode five, I think it was when he he talks about every time you make every time you fail to make a choice, that is also a choice. So I think Friedman says just leave it alone, let people mm-hmm. figure it out because government it's not good at it or not, and it's not their job to tell us how to live. I think you and I kind of agreed with that when we were discussing George Will. But I think that maybe the difference is, at least for me, I'm a little bit more sympathetic to what George Will wants to accomplish. Friedman may or may not be sympathetic to that. It seems like he's really, truly agnostic to any sort of ethical problems or ethical issues. Yeah, maybe it's and also that he was writing in 1962 and, and Will was writing in, I think, 82, sometime in the 80s. So Will had seen 20 years since then of, of government not really regulating or even encouraging morality. Seeing the 60s, which I mean, from our episode about Bork, we remember what, what he thought of the 60s. Nothing good. And then, then the 70s, more of the same, kind mm-hmm. of worse. So I think when you get to, to the 80s with Will, he's saying, oh, okay, maybe we, the government shouldn't be, there shouldn't be a state church or something telling you that this is a sin and this isn't, but there should be at least a little little nudge, a little encouragement in the direction of traditional moral behavior. So I think maybe Friedman mm-hmm. writing in, in 62 would, would think, well, most people are going to do the right thing because most people do have those intermediate institutions that you were talking about, social groups, churches, and, and neighborhood community that would, without the intervention of government, nudge you in the right direction and maybe help correct you or hold you up when you fall. And I think by the time we get closer to mm-hmm. the present day, some of those intermediary institutions have kind of fallen away. I think maybe, maybe that's sort of what was animating George Will in the way he is distinct from Friedman here. That does make sense. It really strikes me, though, as sort of the same general attitude of Elizabeth Warren only coming from the right, where, you know, Elizabeth Warren would say, well, you know, capitalism for the free market, that's the right way to go. But over the years, over these past decades, we've seen that it doesn't work for everybody. And so we need to change it. You know, Bork or Will, yep, capitalism is the way to go. Political freedom is the way to go. But we've seen over the decades that when we allow the system to just kind of run free, we've seen that it creates decadence and depraved morality and so government needs yeah, to Yeah, I guess it's the next step in Will's formulation that makes me return to more of Friedman's point of view. It's like, well, okay, we need to do something. Well, what do we need to do and who gets to decide how to do it? Oh, I don't I don't like this now. <laughs> you know, because now it's mm-hmm. now it's, you know, whatever yeah political yeah. leader of the day, maybe you like him, maybe you don't. Do I want Donald Trump deciding morality? Do I want Nancy Pelosi deciding it? I don't think so. So in that in that way I think mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe it's kind of the centralization thing for Friedman, too. It's dispersed power. We should disperse ideas about morality, too. But what flies for Nancy Pelosi's district might not fly for most parts of the country. There is a slippery slope, I think, to the the Friedman frame of mind, too. And that is you, you can quickly get to a place of almost pure anarchy where there is such radical individualism that we don't want the government telling us anything. And I don't know that there's a lot of people that would agree with that. And even Friedman himself, I was wondering if he was going to go this direction. But even him, even Friedman says, well, actually, classical liberals are not an- anarchists. So we're, we're not going to go pure libertarian. Instead, let's recognize that absolute freedom is not possible. We do need government. Just to reiterate, he says, we need government to, one, provide a means whereby we can modify the rules Two, mediate differences among us on the meaning of the rules, courts. Three, enforce compliance with the rules on the part of those few who would otherwise not play the game. And to me, this harkens back to the reason that Locke says that human beings left the state of nature, because it actually is pretty idyllic, and that's anarchy, right? I mean, 
people do, doing their own thing and we don't have a collective and most people are good in Locke's view of human nature. Humans are naturally good, but some are going to make bad choices. And so what we needed was a society to pr protect ourselves, to preserve property. And that's pretty much Fried Friedman's conception as well. Left to ourselves, that would yeah. be the very best. But acknowledging that some people will make bad choices that are going to harm others, we're going to have to create some rules and we're going to have to have somebody enforce them. I was interested to see a couple of situations he pointed out as places where even government should intervene in the markets. I, I didn't know if there were going to be any in this book, but he talks about monopolies and neighborhood mm -hmm. effects. His conception of what's a monopoly also is a little narrower than some mainstream politicians. I think he says sometimes natural monopolies develop and there's not really a better alternative to that. But to the extent monopolies develop through government support or through collusive agreements among individuals, it is the duty of the government to break them up because they, they interfere with our freedom in the marketplace in that way. And it's sort of like his definition of freedom is mm -hmm. not overruling another person's freedom. Well, in a, in a way, a monopoly does that, especially if it's a government-supported monopoly, which just sort of gives you the more coercive aspect of it. But he he does he does make the point that mm -hmm. he says, when technical conditions make a monopoly the natural outcome, competitive market forces, there are only three alternatives seem available. Private monopoly, public monopoly, or public regulation. And sometimes private monopoly is the least bad of these. Mm -hmm. It made me think of Google because what we have is basically a, a natural monopoly and you know they are so dominant certainly friedman is a lot more forward leaning on on the break of monopolies than i would have anticipated but what would he say about google he'd probably say well it's not a good thing but it's better to just leave it in place and not have government intervention and just let it play itself out because eventually it'll burn itself out and that, that's and that probably is true with google because it's something that you that the costs of switching to a competitor are low. You don't have to buy a new computer. You just go to a different website. But it is it is pretty monopolistic in a way, and it and it has a lot of power. And it's it's a concentration of power, which Friedman doesn't. And it's I mean it's a concentration in private hands rather than in government hands. But it's still still something that I think people do feel threatened by. And I think we we kind of swing back and forth into which we feel more which threatens our freedom more, big business or big government. It's you know, it's different in different ages. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, mm -hmm. Google's a good example of that, which I should also add, if any of you listeners want to write to us, our email address is consmindspodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> so we are part of the problem stuck in the construct of the <laughs> yes. trapped in the system as well. Yeah, it's it well because it's easier. You just set it up; it works. It's a it's a natural monopoly in that in the in the way he's he's discussing because they 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 do something, they do a good job at it. It's essentially free, kind of. But um, so maybe that's preferable to like what would be the solution of a public monopoly? You know, at government search engine, government mail. I, I don't think that would work any mm -hmm. better. <laughs> no, we don't want no. that either. But, Hey, so we're running a little bit low on time. There's one 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 issue that I really wanted to talk about a little bit, and that's in the conclusion. He says he talks about progress because again, this is this is always a, one of the criticisms of of a limited role of government is it's it doesn't allow the society to develop and it and it leaves people behind. But he says the U.S. has continued to progress. Citizens have become better fed, better clothed, better housed, and better transported. And in chapter 10, he says, the rise of capitalism has greatly lessened the extent of inequality. Now, inequality, obviously, that's a front burner topic. And I think that's a shorthand way for the collectivist left, you know, Elizabeth Warren's of the world to sort of criticize capitalism as to say that it creates inequality. But he says capitalism actually incredibly effective tool for decreasing inequality. Now, I want to just read some 
some quick stats here, if you don't mind, and then get your reaction. Because he he's exactly right. The world's Gini co- coefficient, which is the most commonly used measure of income distribution, has actually fallen from 1988 from 0.69 to 0.63. You know, the larger it is, the more quality. And so it's actually reduced. The global middle class expanded as real income went up between 70% and 80%. For those around the world who are already earning at or near the global median, including some 200 million Chinese people, 90 million Indians, and 30 million each from Indonesia, Egypt, and Brazil. Those in the bottom third of the global income distribution registered real income gains between 40% and 70%. The shares of the world's population living on $1.25 or less per day, that's what the World Bank defines as absolute poverty, fell from 44% to 23%. This is since 1988, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's dropped in half. You know, so what's changed since 1988? Why is that an interesting date? Well, the collapse of communism that happened in 1988 and the spread of free market institutions in China, in India, in Russia, in South Korea, in Southeast Asia, several Latin American countries and, and more. Market economic reforms, freer trade, foreign investment, just as Friedman predicted, these factors capitalism, the free market. That's what has created wealth and pulled people out of poverty. And I want to refer listeners to, if they haven't read it, to uh, Stephen Pinker's works on on this subject, particularly a book Enlightenment Now, because he just goes through the entire litany of how the free market, he's, he's going to call it enlightenment, it's basically like classical liberalism has pulled people out of poverty and has changed the, the human condition almost completely. Economic historian Deidre McCloskey has written at length about the enormous and unprecedented growth in living standards that began in the Western world around 1700. She calls it a factor of 16. Contemporary human beings consume at least 16 times the food, clothing, housing, and education that our ancestors did in London in the 18th century. And that vast increase in wealth began in Britain and the Netherlands, it's spread to most of Europe, to the United States, to Japan, and now to all these Iron Curtain countries in uh, Eastern Europe and throughout the entire world. It is completely and utterly undeniable. And again, Friedman wrote in the shadow of the competition that was very hot between socialism and a free market democratic society between the United States and the Soviet Union. And there were many at the time who fully believed that the Soviet Union would come out on top and that communism would prove itself the best system. Instead, what it proved is that the Stalinist regime slaughtered tens of millions of his own people, the Maoist regime, tens of millions of their own people. I saw a statistic that said in in those 50 years, these authoritarian, leftist authoritarian governments slaughtered over 100 million people. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, capitalism, it just pulls people out of poverty and it continues to do so. Yeah, that's all true. And and it really validates everything Friedman said here. And it kind of goes to another point in this conclusion that people who hate capitalism hate it compared to an idealized world. I think they're comparing it to like a Garden of Eden sort of situation. Everybody's going to share. It's going to be nice. There's going to be so much stuff, you know multitudes of everything. Nobody will have to work. Well, none of that's ever been true and none of it can be true. I mean, if, if, if communism or, or fascism or any of these other collectivist ideologies could do that, they would have done it Been tried in enough mm-hmm. countries. So, I mean, people, you know, it's, it's like the Churchill line about democracy being the, the worst system, except for all the others. And it's capitalism yeah. is, you know, it's not perfect because human beings are not perfect. And you know, it's, it's the, the system, the best system we have for a world that is broken or imperfect. 
and counterintuitively, I think it's also the best system and it's proved itself out, help the less advantaged, you know, minority groups. Look, America has a sordid history and there we have some issues that still need ironing out and we need to improve. But there is not a socialist country in this world that's even approached even approached. I mean, the United States had eight years of a black president. You're not going to see that in Egypt, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's something comparable. You know, one of their minority groups taking control. You know, you're not going to you're not going to see that North Korea. No, you look at what you look at what Stalin did with minority groups in the Soviet Union. Just deported all of them, all the Chechens. Yeah, you know, yeah, all the Ossetians. I think because that's that's concentrated power in the hands of somebody with terrible ideas. And that seems to be how it always ends up, is eventually somebody, if you concentrate power, somebody with awful ideas will get his hands on it. All right, closing thoughts? I think you, you nailed it, that capitalism and freedom, they, they have to go hand in hand. And like, like Friedman said, if it's, you know, uh, it's not a sufficient cause, but it, it, they, they do go together. They, to have one without the other really can't last. And that's something we're going to be confronting, as you mentioned, in the next couple of years, as people call themselves democratic socialists, who some of them are too young to remember, some of them are old enough to know better. You know, socialism did exist in the world and they called themselves democratic too. And we saw how it ended up. It, a lot of utilitarian ideas and best for everyone, but utilitarianism always ends in the gulag. And I mm-hmm. think Friedman makes that point clearly. And I would recommend this book to anybody who cares about these issues. Very well written, brisk read with a lot of details if you want them, but it's also very, he makes great points and, and lays them out with a lot of style in his prose. It's a great, he's a great apostle for freedom. I completely agree. And I really hope that we can have a Friedman emerge sometime Mm. because like you said, these issues are returning kind of with a vengeance. We need someone with his voice, with his strength to kind of push back. It does come across maybe a little bit extreme, but I think the reason why is because he's trying to slap us awake from this this dream that we've been lulled into, the dream of what you said, uh, this utopian ideal of what, what society could be. Maybe conceptually it's possible, but in reality, each time that human beings, imperfect human beings, have tried to carry forth one of these social experiments, it has failed miserably and ended in, really ended in mass murder. I, I really respect Friedman. I loved reading this. Again, he makes an argument that, that needs to be made today as much as it did even back then. So that's it for Milton Friedman. Next episode, we're going to read a book called The Quest for Community by sociologist Robert Nisbet written in 1953. So I hope you'll join us then. Thank you.